Hello, and welcome to Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of a pretty busy week in business and finance, given that it was Thanksgiving week. Of course, I, Felix Ammon of Axios, and Elizabeth Spires. Hello. And Emily Peck. Hello, hello. We are all going to talk about OpenAI and what went on there, because that was the big crazy, and you've never seen anything like it. So that is coming up. We are also going to talk about Binance, though, because there was a major prosecution agreement with Binance, the biggest crypto exchange in the world. We're going to talk about Javier Millet, who got elected as the next president of Argentina. We have a Slate Plus segment on Larry Summers. It's a good one this week. It's all coming up on Slate Money. Okay, so normally... Thanksgiving is a quiet week where nothing much happens and we can all just snooze and eat lots of turkey. This year, this turns out to have been one of those weeks where we really need a slate money. So, Emily, can you just give me the big top-level overview, first of all, of what the hell happened to OpenAI? (laughs) (laughs) Basically, about a little over a week ago, Sam Altman, the very famous CEO of OpenAI, which is the company that everyone knows about because they're the ones who put out ChatGPT about a year ago, and that went crazy. And it basically broke AI into the mainstream and made AI this force in our minds, in the the economy, all of that. He was fired abruptly, all of a sudden, no warning, no indication, no news stories. It was totally out of the blue, which really almost never happens in like CEO world. It's it's pretty rare. Um, and it happened like, I think it happened on a Friday and people were freaking out because this is a guy, a CEO at the height of his powers at a company kind of at the height of its powers. And we'll get into why the company is really weird. But yeah, he was fired out of nowhere. Is total surprise. Microsoft, which has invested, I think it holds like 49% of OpenAI, they come out and they say, we didn't even know this was happening until a minute before it happened. And the whole world freaks out, especially because it's the week leading into Thanksgiving. There's no other business news. So this is the business news to end all business news. So that happens. And it's crazy. Then a few days later, Sam Altman or someone else, there's reporting, he's going to come back. He's not going to come back. Then the company appoints a CEO, interim CEO. She stops being interim CEO in less than 24 hours. They put in another interim CEO, this guy from Twitch. Crazy. There's like profiles and the the news frenzy is reaching fevered dimensions. There's no other business news to cover. There's like 60 explainers about the new CEO. Okay. Everyone's all about the new CEO. There's profiles. Why you need to be afraid of the new CEO. Why it's good that the new CEO is there. Then not many days later, new CEO is out. Sam Altman, reinstated triumphantly, comes back to the company. All of this, I believe, in less than a week time, it happens. So now Sam Altman is back at the company. You could say nothing has changed, but everything has changed, and we will discuss. Everything has changed in some pretty profound ways, but most importantly, Basically, the board that fired him is gone. And this is, from a governance perspective, absolutely fascinating to me. Effectively, what happened was that the employees of OpenAI fired the board. The board was a nonprofit board. It had no fiduciary obligation to shareholders. They actually have a charter saying our only fiduciary obligation is to humanity as a whole. And so... 
you know, when you're accountable only to humanity as a whole, that basically makes you <laughs> unaccountable. But it turns out that they are actually answerable to employees. Employees turned out to have the real power here. And when the overwhelming majority of employees, I think ultimately more than 700 of the 750-odd employees signed a letter basically saying, we're going to quit unless Sam Altman is reinstated in the board resigns. When you saw that level of worker power basically unite behind the ousted CEO, they wound up trouncing the power of the board and indeed the power of Microsoft, which had briefly managed to hire Sam Altman along the way. He was like a Microsoft employee at some point. And then he's like, actually, never mind. I'm not going to go work for Microsoft after all. I'm going to go back to my old job running OpenAI. I'm so happy that you're here, Emily. I wanted to ask you, is this, what does this tell you about the power of workers? And there's been a lot of takes about how this shows the power of capitalism over the, you know, nonprofit mandates that various people like OpenAI have. But in terms of just like labor versus capital, how do you see this whole saga? Yeah, that's a really good point. And I did forget to mention in my sweeping overview that Almost all of OpenAI's employees, you know, sign this letter and threaten to quit. I don't know if this this is something that could be replicated to other companies. You know, an employee kind of revolt, an insistence that the board or the CEO act in a certain way. I don't I think it's a very unique situation to AI because right now anyone with AI experience or knowledge, these are basically like the hottest guys at the party. Like these employees are the most sought-after employees in tech. There's um, this AI wage premium that I've written about and tons of other people have written about. Like, everyone wants to hire these guys. Like, when the company and the CEO, it was unclear what was going to happen. I think Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff, you know, he tweeted, we will hire any of you. We'll match your salary. These are the hottest, the hottest of the hot. These workers can work anywhere they want. Exactly. And they ha- and they do have a lot of power. But I don't think you could say that all workers have that kind of power. Right, Elizabeth? Yeah, this is it's also an unusual situation for a couple of reasons. You know, Microsoft is an investor in OpenAI's for-profit subsidiary, but it operates on a capped return model. So you, you can't get, you know, ridiculous valuations for the company you can the cap the cap is a hundred x so like let's not let's not get ourselves that the cap is important well i mean when you look at early stage venture and what they expect and you know especially for a company like open ai that's been talked about as a potential unicorn i think that's material but the other thing is microsoft has a heavy incentive to keep open ai together because they are invested so when altman was initially going to microsoft and there were talks about him coming back. Uh, the CEO of Microsoft, you know, intervened and tried to facilitate that happening. Which I can't think of any other situation like that where the person hiring Altman would have an incentive to help him go back to the prior company. Yeah, I think I think Microsoft was happy either way. You know, Microsoft didn't invest in OpenAI in order to make lots of money by exiting at some point in the future, right? Microsoft invested in OpenAI because it wanted to become a leader in AI, and you can see that in its share price, that you know it, it seems to have overtaken all of its rivals in, in terms of at least how the stock market values its AI and expertise, much of which is 
OpenAI sort of by proxy that because Microsoft has that investment in OpenAI, its rivals can't. It's kind of like blocked them out that way. It would have also been perfectly happy for Sam Altman to bring all of its employees over to Microsoft, which was like the plan for five minutes in the middle there. Like that would also have been fine. You know, if the Microsoft investment in OpenAI went to zero, they hadn't actually invested very much money in OpenAI. They, you know, there's there's been big headlines about $10 billion or $13 billion or something that they invested in OpenAI, but very little of that was actual cash. And most of the cash they did invest was in the future. And most of what they did invest was just like credits for compute, for Azure compute. And so like, if they wound up getting all of the talent and all of the real value in the company, which is the employees, just coming to work for Microsoft, that would have been fine. But they're also happy with them at arm's length doing what they have been doing up until now, um, partly because this is a really gnarly, dangerous, weird part of the world. And one of the reasons why OpenAI was set up as a nonprofit is because people realized how gnarly and weird and dangerous it was, and they felt Sam Altman and Elon Musk and the other co-founders felt that it did need a layer of like people who weren't just trying to make money at the top controlling things. You know, quite famously, Google with its DeepMind subsidiary kind of got to the large language model technology a couple of years before OpenAI did. They just never released it as a product because they were very scared about um, the consequences of doing so. And you know, there has always been this tension within OpenAI going back a few years to when a bunch of the more ideological employees left um, to form Anthropic, that those employees like saw the way that Sam Altman had turned it into a for-profit effectively and saw the way he was monetizing it and productizing it and got very scared about that. And while you can while Microsoft can sort of happily accept that at an arm's length partner it would have been maybe a bit harder for them to have to deal with it internally and have to run everything by their compliance offices and that kind of thing so i think satya nadella at microsoft is very happy with this outcome yeah i think also you know to your point one of the reasons why the board was spooked initially is that you know the board skewed toward not ai doomerism but more of a safety orientation and supposedly there was some big internal development where OpenAI has been working on a more advanced model that's supposedly getting close to artificial general intelligence, which is not really a thing. It doesn't exist right now. Ridiculously, they've named it QSTAR, which I feel like is going to make the QAnon <laughs> people lose their minds. Um, but we, we still don't know what QSTAR really is. The QSTAR thing is, I, I feel like this is a sideshow. There's no actual evidence that the board received any letters about QSTAR or that they acted on because of QSTAR. Um, certainly for the time being, the actual reasons why the boards fired Altman are very, very opaque, and they don't seem to have really told anyone, and they, they don't seem to be capable of writing it down anywhere. Um, and it's all kind of moot at this point anyway, because they've all been fired, or all but one of them have been fired, and they've been replaced by Larry Summers. Yeah, <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? You need somebody on the board to be wrong at all times, and um. that was the... <laughs> ideal candidate. So it it seems like based on all the reporting that their their beef generally was they were afraid of over commercializing 
AI and they were they were idealistic in their beliefs and all this. But they really cocked it up. Well, we don't know that. We we have no idea. The only thing they said was that he basically wasn't being fully candid, which may or may not have been related to this like side project he had where he was running around Saudi Arabia trying to raise billions of dollars to create a new chip maker to compete with NVIDIA, which is kind of a weird thing to do when you have a full-time job running OpenAI. Um, and maybe he wasn't being open about that. Maybe th- there was other talk about maybe it was a couple of announcements at the developer day when they said they were going to open things up more like, and probably the board hadn't been totally read into what they were going to announce at the developer day. No one really knows. There could be a million different things going on there. We do seem to know that the board acted in a very rushed way. um, Didn't seem to run anything by any lawyers. Didn't seem to think it through very well. Didn't give anyone any advance notice and just generally weren't capable of explaining themselves in a sort of coherent way to anyone at all. And ultimately, they were there to have the sort of high-minded ideals and stick to the pole star kind of mission of the company. But because they couldn't articulate that in any way, no one they, they lost everyone's support. That is what's so interesting to me. It's it's this idealism meets the real world dynamic that is so sort of troubling, um, affirming to anyone who cares about sort of money and business and reality, because it's it so shows you that these people meant to protect humanity with all these very lofty ideals don't have or didn't have the capability to put them into practice. Um, and you see it. You see those kinds of things, you know, all over. You see it in politics all the time. People have very lofty ideals about, you know, um, the way the world should work. And then they take over, you know, Congress and shut the government down. They don't know what to do about it. It's just the same kind of thing where idealism meets reality and, you know, reality has to prevail. We should mention as well that this particular flavor of idealism is very, very close to almost identical to Sam Bankman-Fried's flavor of idealism, which is the long-termist sub-flavor of effective altruism. Um, and this mm-hmm. whole Fustercluck has basically just, you know, when when EA was already down and suffering in the wake of the FTX implosion, it has now just provided yet another sort of death blow to it. It does, I think you're absolutely right, Emily, that this is proof that when Silicon Valley gets idealistic, like it just doesn't work in practice. It also depends on the ideals. You know, the tension in this story is between the decelerationists and the people who are accelerationists and Altman's kind of the latter. I think most of the staff at OpenAI skew toward accelerationism. Mm. You see, I'm not sure about that, Elizabeth. I really don't think that's true. Remember that Altman set this up as a nonprofit because on some level he is a decelerationist. He portrayed the move to a for-profit as kind of a necessary evil in order to raise the amount of money needed to get the compute needed to fulfill the mission. But he's the founder of OpenAI. He, you know, he had no stock in OpenAI, famously, right? He sent out this tweet saying, like, if the board doesn't like what I'm doing, they can come at me for the full value of my shares, which is Ha ha funny tweet because the full value of his shares was zero, right? He sat on the board with no equity in OpenAI precisely because he felt that no board members should be financially invested in this. He didn't like, 
I think painting him as an accelerationist in the vein of someone like Mark Andreessen is is a little bit wrong. I think he's not quite there, but he is in the camp of releasing products, of monetizing. I guess, like, on some level, he's just a capitalist. He came from Y Combinator, which is a very capitalist organization in Silicon Valley that's made that made him a lot of money. So he's independently wealthy anyway. He doesn't need the money. He drives around in a $20 million McLaren. Wait, that's how much that car costs? $20 million? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's how much that car costs. Oh, my God. <laughs> Why would? You, how can a smart person drive around in a $20 million car? That honestly seems <laughs> stupid to me. <laughs> Sorry, don't mean to do the tangent here, but... No, no, but it's, it's, no, but it's true. Like, he, like he, on, he's not one of those people like Sam Bankman-Fried who's like, I'm going to make the world better by making lots of money and giving the money away, right? And driving and a Corolla. Also, he's- <laughs> and also, that's the big difference between the non-profit open AI owning the for-profit o- open AI versus something like a non-profit Patagonia owning the for-profit Patagonia or a non-profit Bloomberg owning the for-profit Bloomberg or a non-profit Novo Nordisk Foundation owning the for-profit Novo Nordisk, right? The pro- with all of those, all the non-profit really wants is the money from the profits from the for-profit to go ahead and then just use those profits and give them away in a way that benefits humanity. In OpenAI, there are no profits of the for-profit subsidiary. It's a money-losing operation, not a money-making operation. And the purpose of the nonprofit is not to spend profits from the subsidiary, but rather to just use the subsidiary to develop AGI in a, in a, in a moral way. And so it's a very complex and troubled kind of um, setup. I think people were far too facile about whether it would work. And ultimately, although the nonprofit mission certainly helped in terms of getting OpenAI to attract the talent, like talent in, in AI really likes talking about this kind of thing. When push comes to shove, the talent, the labor, the workers saw the amount of money that their equity was worth, saw that Sam Altman was offering them liquidity at an $86 billion valuation, saw that that offer was about to like completely evaporate. And they were like, fuck it. We, you know, we've already mentally cashed that check and we don't want to lose it. And I think, you know, coming back to my original question to Emily in terms of labor versus capital, I think this was just capital. Like all of these workers were shareholders. And really it was the shareholder workers who wanted to protect the value of their $86 billion investment much more than anything else that caused the arrival of a capitalist Larry Summers on the board. Yeah, that, I feel like that's a very cynical way of looking at the workers who signed that letter. And I don't, I didn't see enough great reporting that that came out and said these people were really worried about, you know, getting paid out on the shares that they had in OpenAI. These workers are already really well paid, making I think in some cases over three hundred thousand dollars a year. No, 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 that, way over three hundred. The average, the average salary is is north of eight hundred thousand, and some of them are on like. Tens of millions, yeah. Mm-hmm. In the original press release, they appointed the CTO as the new CEO, and they said that the former chairman would con- would no longer serve on the board, but would continue to work on the for the company. And within about six minutes, 
the chairman said, wait, what? No, you fired me from the board. I'm quitting the company. And the CTO said, wait, I don't want to be the CEO. I want Sam back as the CEO. <laughs> like, like, you, like, if you, if you announce a major transition of a new CEO and like major and, and founders being kicked off the board, you want to do that in a planned out way so that the new, you know, ex post status quo is, is stable enough to last more than seven minutes, you know, and they just, they were so incompetent, they couldn't even manage that. It's very much if you come at the king, you best not miss kind of situation. And it's very succession in its ham-handedness. Like, it just yeah. was not executed. I mean, come on. Even I know, like, you got to prep the ground before you make the move. Uh, the, the three of us could have got, done this better. Yeah, they they did a really bad job. And it makes you it makes you think about these effective altruists and these idealists that maybe they're just... Are they just not that smart? I don't know. I don't know. I'm just putting that out there, and I don't mean to malign anyone. I, I, I think, I think that's exactly right. None of it has been thought through very much. All they, all they can do is a bunch of fucking thought experiments and trolley problems. And there's really no evidence that effective altruism has had any positive effects on the planet. You know, beyond the like the charitable arm of it. Right. So if you look at right. Give Well or Give Directly or like those kind of places where, where they're like, what we want to do is save human lives today, then like quantifying that, I think there is a case to be made that that has actually worked pretty well. But the minute they start saying, well, is saving human lives today really important compared to possibly saving the planet from the threat of an AI apocalypse? At that point, everything just becomes you know, sort of dorm room masturbation. Right. And then the the one logical step from that is they don't know what they're talking about, perhaps, when they're talking about the AI apocalypse. Like their dorm room imaginings extend to the AI apocalypse. They're just like, I watched Terminator and I think this is the big danger facing us. But now you have to think like, these guys don't know what they're saying. Like maybe the AI apocalypse isn't so bad. <laughs> it is almost impossible to overstate, Emily, the degree to which long-termist AI is influenced by science fiction and really, really cares about science fiction and treats various science fiction texts as being like incredibly important. And they're like, science fiction is one of the key ways in which effective altruists work through their ideas about what might happen in the future no that just i mean that's <laughs> dumb come on isn't it <laughs> oh my god it's just like there are a lot of problems there are a lot of real world problems that tech brings about like we are living through it the social social media the last big tech breakthrough broke a lot of things <laughs> politically i can I, there are bad things that could happen, I'm sure, from AI, but like not the things they're worried about. It's just so crazy. Like, just focus on reality. There are plenty of problems if, if you're so idealistic that you could be solving. It's just, it's embarrassing. I'm embarrassed for all these people. I do want to talk about a different part of technology governance, though, finance, after this. So, an actually successful, actually profitable, mega global technology company, Binance, just lost its founder and CEO 
CZ because he pleaded guilty to um, various civil and criminal charges in federal court. And this is a big deal. Like OpenAI, you know, is a money losing company. Binance is one of the most profitable technology companies in the world. It is the winner of the FTX implosion. FTX was basically created to be a competitor to Binance, never became as big as Binance, but it started threatening Binance before it collapsed. When FTX collapsed, Binance was the last major global crypto exchange standing, and it still is. And this is the thing that really fascinates me, is that as part of this kind of deal that Binance did with the U.S. government, um, CZ, the founder, has stepped down. He's pleaded guilty to certain things. He flew. He stepped foot in the United States. He walked into federal court in Seattle to plead guilty. He knew that there was a risk that he would get arrested, but like evidently he had some kind of promises that that wouldn't happen. And Binance itself continues. It's going to pay a $4 billion fine, and it's going to continue under new management. And I've seen various you know, stories in the FT and places about like, oh, you know, can Binance survive this? And I'm like, well, there has to, you know, by definition, there is always going to be a biggest crypto exchange in the world. And it is really hard for me to see what that exchange would be if it's not Binance. And you can really come down like a ton of bricks on this company and on its founder CEO and he might even go to prison, although somehow I doubt it. And ultimately, like, this is a strong company because it is still going strong. It lost, like, you know, a few billion dollars of customer funds or whatever, but that's fine. There's nowhere for those customer funds to go. Can we just say what why Binance was charged? I think historically large fines by the, by the U.S. government was because criminals were using the exchange to launder money, not just any criminals, but like Hamas. Hamas was using it to uh, launder money, other criminals. I mean, some of the quotes, there's this one I really liked. One guy inside the company said, quote, we need a banner that says, is washing drug money too hard these days? Come to Binance. We got cake for you. Like it was so blatant (laughs) that they were doing this. Um, So I feel like I don't want to lose sight of that. I just feel like it needs to be said. Yeah. So it, it and it does rhyme a little bit with Bitmex, which was a previous exchange that got done from for violating, you know, AML, KYC, money laundering, all of this kind of stuff. Know your customer. No one is actually accusing Binance itself of being a fraud, a la right. FTX. Um, no one is accusing Binance itself of stealing anyone's money. What they are saying, which is absolutely true is that Binance kind of turned a blind eye to certain activities that the US would much rather didn't happen right not not only turned a blind eye they like they their eyes were open and they were waving their hands <laughs> come here come here criminals they sort of they also acknowledged that they had given some of these people VIP status internally mm-hmm. because they were moving so much money through the system and they they knew what they were doing I guess that's an important point. It wasn't that they were they were doing a great job as as a crypto exchange. They just were doing that great job for people that the United States government doesn't want them doing a great job 
for it it's still like this is a good crypto exchange right i mean it's it's yeah the 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 charges and the fine doesn't indicate that this is a place you don't want to exchange money i guess unless you're a big terrorist or something no no exactly they they are a good crypto exchange and they are a good crypto exchange for the vast majority of their clients who are not terrorists and also for the minority of their clients who are terrorists and they were far too um nice to the terrorists and that is going to get you into trouble with the americans and this is a a prime example though of the way in which the united states basically can take anyone on the planet and say if you fund the kind of organizations who we don't like even if you're not an american company and you don't have an american ceo and there's nothing and you don't even use dollars because you know it's all crypto we will find a way to come after you and they did and they, you know, and they managed to get this $4 billion fine. And I 100% believe that, like, a huge part of the whole impetus behind crypto in the first place, and all of the original true believers of, in, behind crypto were basically saying the American fiat dollar system has way too much power, and we need to create a new different parallel system that isn't within the reach of the American government. And it turns out that was impossible. And that ultimately, even though it wasn't dollar-based, it was all crypto-based, and you know they, um, they weren't in the United States, and they were quite careful to try and prevent American users from using Binance. Like, with all of those attempts to try and create a parallel non-American money exchange international money exchange the, the the americans are like yeah no we don't like that you're funding terrorists we're gonna fine you and not quite shut you down but really c- cause a lot of damage and it does show the power of the americans the fact that cz came to america turned himself in voluntarily it's kind of amazing because he was like well i could become you know, a, an international fugitive for my for the rest of my life, and try and avoid extradition and whatnot. You know, live in my penthouse in the Emirates somewhere, and 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 basically just know that I'm stuck and can never. There's like much of the planet I'm never going to be able to visit, or I can just sort of write a four billion dollar check and hope that I get no jail sentence or at best a very short one and he made that like calculated um decision partly because the overwhelming majority of his net worth is in binance and what this does is it allows him to continue to be the majority shareholder of binance which is worth a huge amount of money do you think this does anything for confidence in the sector or is it just kind of nets out? This is sort of what people expect from crypto at this point because it's still, a, you know, an early industry. Well, I, th- I think what it shows is that the early dream in the crypto universe of being able to build something parallel to and separate from the U.S. dollar system is dead, and that if there's ever going to be any kind of life in crypto going forwards it's going to have to be compliant with a huge you know long list of us rules and regulations and whims and and at that point like kind of what's the point because you may as well just use dollars at that point 
Well, people are making money. Bitcoin, you know, the price price of Bitcoin went up on this news, I believe, this week. So yeah, yeah, you can trade Bitcoin. It becomes like a a dumb casino, right? You know, like this coin go up, that coin go down. It's like, but it it loses any real dream of deep utility. Like the reason why Bitcoin is better than the dollar has disappeared. It's no longer. It doesn't have any of those advantages anymore. Right. This was just a showing of massive United States power at the end of the day. And the the United States controls the plumbing, controls the plumbing, controls the world. Okay, so let's just return to Javier Millet. We did cover him in a previous episode when he won the primary. He has now, by a large margin, become the president-elect of Argentina. He is starting off on a glorious foot, like he immediately put out a press release saying that he'd talked to British Chancellor James Cameron, who had oh. congratulated him on his election, which is glorious because number one, the British Chancellor, like he meant David Cameron, not James Cameron. Like James Cameron is the film director, David Cameron is the guy who just came back as foreign secretary but he came back as foreign secretary if not as chancellor which is you know anyway i kind of think he thinks that the guy who directed titanic is the prime minister of britain <laughs> wouldn't that be great if true <laughs> he seems to not really uh understand things about government functions generally there's this uh, great video where he's uh got you know a magnetized board and audit or magnets with lists of government agencies and he's just ripping them off and saying this one's got to go this one's got to go like a cat you know swiping things off a table okay but like it's not like argentina is this well-governed amazing country in a great spot and this guy's gonna ruin it it's, it's gonna it's not gonna make it dismantling the government entirely is not is not going to happen <laughs> like let's just be very clear about this because i said this last time we talked about him and and I think there are two big misconceptions about Javier MLA. The first one is that he is related to someone like Donald Trump or Gert Wilders, who just won or didn't win, but did surprisingly well in the Netherlands election, or Javier Bolsonaro, or you know any of these kind of far right populists. And he has like hairstyle similarities with them but in terms of ideology you know he's ideologically very very different he's not a nationalist he's not a racist he's not like you know he's not trying to stir up um those kind of atavistic um hordes that that you see the far right try and pander to in the rest of the world he really is an anarcho-capitalist, a self-described anarcho-capitalist in the um, tradition of various like Austrian economists, and he, you know, loves to talk about Murray Rothbard and Robert Lucas and people like this. And he honestly just believes that the best thing he can do for Argentina is to get rid of the government, make the government almost non-existently small, get rid of the currency, just have Argentines use the dollar, which they kind of already do in many cases and just get out of the way and let the market solve all of the problems and that's an anarcho-capitalism felix just to make sure that everyone including me understand it's basically let the market rule everything that's it that's that's what it means anarcho-capitalist 
if like privatize, you know, Aerolineas Argentinas and give all of the shares to its employees. And if they can't make it profitable, then let it die. You know, that kind of thing. And that's more that's not like the same as a free market capitalist. It's like a more extreme version of that. Right. It's imagine a free market, but without the government setting any kind of rules or guidelines. Imagine a, a free market without like FTC or any kind of antitrust or, you know, like it's just really very, very like real free, super anarchic. free. Yeah. <laughs> or companies are allowed to poison you because there's no FDA. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So that's like ideologically where he is, which is very like, you know, when people see the words far right wins elections, I think they think a different type of far right. But then the second thing that people that, that is deeply misunderstood is that, like most countries, you know, the president of Argentina doesn't really have the power to do any of these things. If he wants to pass laws, he needs to get them through parliament. And the Peronists control parliament, and the Peronists have no love for Malay. And the Peronists really control politics in Argentina, even though they didn't win this election. And my base case outlook here is very much that he, that the Peronists are just going to make his life a living hell and going to make it impossible for him to achieve anything. And he's going to be out within a couple of years because he's going to be incapable of doing anything. And he's talked about, like, I don't need parliament. I can just do referendums. It's like, yeah, good luck with that. There are very various things he can do in terms of, like, you know, trying to stage some kind of a military coup or dissolving Congress or something like that, which would be illegal. But I don't think he has the capability to do any of them. And I think that taking his promises at face value and saying like, oh, this is terrible because he says he's going to do this and this and this kind of misses the fact that he's not going to be able to deliver on most of those promises. But he is going to be able to deliver on basically implementing the kind of austerity that I hate to say it, Argentina kind of needs because that's the only way you can get inflation down from its current like triple-digit levels to something sensible. Do you think he understands that he's not going to be able to do most of this stuff? Is he like Trump, where Trump gets up and says, I'm going to build a wall and Mexico is going to pay for it, and he knows and everybody knows that that's bullshit? Or is it more he is is sort of giving people a directional sense of what he wants to do? He's a few arrows short of a quiver. You know, like, <laughs> I, I don't know how realistic he is. Like, when, when he's coming out and he's winning elections with 56% of the vote or whatever, like, he does feel like he has a mandate and he does actually want to do a lot of this. And, and he's gung-ho, full speed ahead. But he hasn't even been sworn in yet. And I think that pretty rapidly, once he actually becomes president and realizes that he can't just wave his hand and make stuff happen um he's going to be like oh i like how he puts his his picture on the dollar and that's like a big thing for him and people give him you know big oversized dollars with his picture on it and i feel like that's fun like we should all be doing that <laughs> in our lives like you put your own picture on a dollar and blow it up and use it as a calling card or wall art in your life and i don't know i feel like he's onto something there at least yeah the problem with our currency is that it's just very boring we, we yeah. need a new aesthetic you need to like personalize it. I mean, it's 2023, <laughs> right? It's it's our images are everywhere and everything. So we should have our own personalized dollars. Maybe crypto can do that, Emily. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is not the numbers round, but I'm going to I'm going to come out with a quick number here which is 
that if you look at the amount of cash, like physical U.S. dollars, that are in circulation in Argentina, ignore all of the pesos and just look at the U.S. dollars, it comes to about 4,400 U.S. dollars per person. Mm -hmm. If you look at how much cash is in circulation in the United States, it's $3,100 per person. There is more American money physical cash circulating in Argentina per person than there, are, there is in the United States. And there is more American money in general in Argentina than, than in any other country in the world except for the United States, right? So to a large degree, Argentina has already become dollarized. If you want to buy a car, if you want to buy a house, if you want to buy anything like actually valuable that keeps its value – you know, there's a very good ch chance you're going to be doing that with like stacks of hundred dollar bills because the peso, you know, no one trusts it. Yeah, and it's a good reminder to people who complain about inflation in the United States. Argent Argentina is really dealing with an inflation problem in a way we have yeah. no experience or understanding of, where literally your money vanishes in your hands, so you have to like put your U.S. dollars, you know, under the floorboards or something <laughs> because your 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 pesos are just declining in value like by the second um it's a whole different ball game it's not just eggs are more expensive or whatever it is they're not yeah, anymore yeah. by the way yeah eggs are down that, did you see that the <laughs> eggs the, are that, down. that thanksgiving dinner index like the cost of a thanksgiving dinner it went down this mm -hmm. year yep. inflation is negative yeah, the turkeys, because um, last year was really bad for the turkeys, as you know, as you, I'm sure Was there like a bird know. flu thing going on? Because the bird yeah. flu, they had to kill a bunch of turkeys. It was a whole, it was awful. But this year, turkeys are good. All good. Yay. <laughs> okay, let's have, let's have a numbers round. You know what? I have a number literally in my hand right now, so I am going to start. My number is 4 million, which is the number of dollars that LNG carrier paid to jump the queue at the Panama Canal. Basically, there's a whole bunch of ships wanting to go through the Panama Canal. The Panama Canal doesn't have a lot of throughput right now because it's the water levels, although I don't quite understand. But in any case, this ship with a bunch of liquefied natural gas on it needed to get through the canal. And while it was waiting, it was sitting in the sun off the coast of Panama, and that gas was just evaporating Aye. and so in order to get to the front of the line it paid four million dollars just to avoid you know sitting there and seeing its cargo just evaporate into the air that's expensive i'm glad yeah. that it's good that they let them pay i mean they could have not let this them is pay. capitalism to the rescue man is this going to become so a new rich person pay? status symbol where you can get your mega yacht to the beginning of the line yeah, if if you have a mega yacht, you can sail through the Panama Canal and you can jump the line, but it will cost you four million dollars. Like, I don't think they care whether you're a LNG ship or a mega yacht. Elizabeth, do you have a number? Uh, yeah, three dollars and twenty eight cents, and that's the national average price of gas right now, which is down twenty percent since early September. Um, and this is kind of to your earlier point. Inflation is negative, but I don't think you would know that if you were just looking at public sentiment. You know, people, there are a lot of people who still think we're in a recession. Uh, they think that inflation is up categorically because prices are not falling, because corporations don't have any incentive to do that. And I saw 
right before Thanksgiving, there were a lot of people on Twitter, which I realized is not indicative of the whole country. Get off Twitter, Elizabeth. It's not good for you. <laughs> I know. I know. I, 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 no I good can it. come of Twitter. Get yeah. This is my 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 great thanks Thanksgiving wish for Twitter is for Elizabeth Byers to finally <laughs> leave it. We should start a write-in campaign. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, I think I think this is fascinating to me. This number because one of the things we've said over and over on this show is that gas prices are the most salient price in the economy. They're the thing that you see in two foot high letters whenever you drive down any major road in the country. And gas prices, more than anything else, at least when they're going up, uh, tend to give you what people think is happening with inflation. And when gas prices are down this much, that price, more than any other, would, in my mind, I would expect that price to cause people to think that inflation is no longer a problem because we actually have deflation in gas prices. So... Yeah, there is a disconnect there, but like it's a weird disconnect because normally people are wrong about inflation because they think that gas is much more important than it is. But in this case, they're wrong about inflation because they're ignoring the price of gas. Or, yeah, some people still compare it to the 20... I see comparisons sometimes to the 2020 gas prices when you remember in like... A March, late March and April 2020, no one was driving. The price of gas was like $2 or something, you know? So yeah, I'll see like, yeah. it's usually like a Trump kind of fan or something saying like, well, when Trump was president, we had $2 gas. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, bring back the pandemic. <laughs> That'll solve everything. Dude, no. Um, Emily, um, what's your okay. number? I'm bringing up this number, even though I know Felix doesn't like it. So I deserve whatever <laughs> happens. Whatever happens next, I've brought it on myself. And I'm know, doing it for you. I'm doing it for oh, you, Slate Money listeners. This, oh, is this a generational thing? <laughs> the number is 525,947. And yes, it's generational. That is the desired ideal salary of the millennials. $525,947 compared to Gen X, which I think we all three are. Our desired salary is apparently $130,000, which if you know anything about math, you know is less than $500,000. <laughs> and this is from a survey done by Harris Poll commissioned by Empower. It's a financial services company of some sort. And they asked all kinds of questions like how much money can buy um, you happiness? What net, net worth do you need to be happy? And the average answer was like 1.2 million. But the millennial salary answer kind of blew everyone away because it's so much higher than all the other generations. But I posit that's because it's a, it was a smallish survey, which Felix will say, and, and only equaled 2,000, and that's not enough people. I'm front-running his comments, hoping he will say nothing. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, also because I think millennials need more money probably for salary than under, other generations because they're kind of like in the thick of things, right? They're like having raising, starting to raise kids, raising kids. They, they just need, they need more, right? That's why millennials are, want so much more money. Half a million dollars a year more? Like I feel like it's possible to raise kids on more than half a million on le less than half a million dollars a year. Well, yeah, but don't forget the avocado toast also that millennials oh, need. Oh, yeah, obviously, okay, like three hundred thousand like of that is avocado toast. Yeah, <laughs> it is a quite a high salary demand. I do think it would be interesting 
for someone to try to replicate this, you know? Yeah. Maybe, maybe, maybe we should do this at Axios. We have a relationship with Harris, right? And we'll be like, hey, Harris, can you go out and just run the same poll again? Yeah, we should. And see what happens. That would, that would be fascinating. Also, Slate Money listeners, please write in and tell us your desired salary. We can't make that happen for you, but we would like to know. <laughs> <laughs> we want to know if we we're would. undershooting for ourselves. So. Yeah. Yeah. Should we be making a million dollars a year? I don't know. I want to know if there. I want to know if there are people like who out there whose ideal salary is lower than what they're making. Oh, interesting. That's interesting. Like the open AI people, they're so idealistic, but they're making eight hundred thousand a year. I mean, come on, money. You know, rubber meets the road here. What's your <laughs> your ideal salary is lower than what you make, right? Obviously, of course. Obviously. Okay, I think that's it for us this week. We are going to have a Slate Plus segment on Larry Summers because I think we have to. Many thanks to Jared Downing for producing. Many thanks to all of you guys for writing in on SlateMoney at Slate.com. And we'll be back on Monday with actually a fantastic episode where I talk to Craig Maud about walking in Japan. I can recommend that one. It's lots of fun. See you then. <laughs> 